Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Amidst a fraught backdrop for macro risk, uncertainty around inflation is a new and vexing challenge for investors. And with this in mind, it was my pleasure to host a conversation with Lindsay Politi, the head of inflation strategies at One River Asset Management. Through our discussion, we learn about the framework she has developed over two decades in fixed income with an emphasis on trading inflation. In Lindsay's rendering, inflation is not a single variable, but needs to be understood through unique cycles and in specific geographies and economies. Fiscal and monetary factors matter in driving inflation, but so too do structural components of labor markets like demographics and the degree to which wage and price growth can become linked in how employees and employers think. Today's environment is unique in the impact of COVID and how it has created supply chain risks that are not easy to reverse, leaving the potential that today's elevated inflation levels will not soon recede. We next turn to the ecosystem of products that pay out specifically on realized inflation. Here, Lindsay comments that shorter-dated, income-oriented products have done quite well, as the realized level of CPI has far outstripped anything that was implied even a short time ago. Rounding out our excellent conversation, we explore the Fed and how it impacts market prices. Lindsay sees lots of manipulation in prices, but still valuable information to be derived from metrics like the break-even inflation curve. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my discussion with Lindsay Politi. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Lindsay Politi. She is the head of inflation strategies at One River Asset Management. Lindsay, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks. Happy to have the conversation. Looking forward to it. It's going to be extremely timely. You're in a field that has not had a lot of attention, perhaps in the last 25 years, but in the last 25 months has certainly had a lot of area of focus. It's uh, critical and important to so much of what's happening in the decision-making process for investors. So we'll have a ton to talk about here. As we get the conversation underway, it'd be great to learn a little bit more about you and your background and your trajectory in the field of finance. Tell us about your start and how you got to where you are now. Sure. So I started in this industry basically right around the peak of the NASDAQ bubble in 2000. I joined Wellington Management and their global bond group, which at the time was, I think, four or five investors. I graduated with a degree in economics and was very interested in macroeconomics. So a lot of my first work was doing things like making chart packages of different market and economic data for the weekly meetings, really just getting an interesting time to observe how people responded to that NASDAQ bubble and watching it unfold. So it was definitely an interesting start. I would say in terms of what I learned from that experience was really sort of two different things. The first one in making the chart packages. So how that would work is I would maintain them, but often the people I would work with would see something in a research report and circle it, and I would recreate it. I learned a lot about how data are manipulated, I'll say, to make a point, and also how people often mistake correlation and causation. I can remember now just some charts that were incredibly popular at the time that really broke down quickly. 
being able to see how you know, the markets can fixate on a relationship and then just all of a sudden ignore it when it fails to work. And being able to watch and get familiar with the data in that way was really helpful. I would say the other thing reflecting on that time is it taught me a lot about how surprised markets can get. I remember being in one of the meetings with my group and one of the other analysts said something. He was so adamant that NASDAQ wouldn't go down very much. And this was after it had already fallen from, say, 4,500 to 3,000, that he offered a 100 to 1 bet that NASDAQ wouldn't get down to 1,500. And I took him on the other side of that. And remember when we broke through 1,500, it was just sort of a lesson in how confident people can be that we stay in a certain range or that we won't see too big numbers. And that's kind of been a surprise over and over in my career is how often we'll see things that are just considered inconceivable happen in the markets. It's amazing how the data, if we stare at it for long enough, it certainly shapes what we believe and the distributions of what we think are possible. We saw that in the incredibly low vol period leading into the financial crisis. We've seen that in, and we'll talk a lot about the implied distribution of inflation through maybe the inflation vol surface. The numbers we're seeing now were just inconceivable by way of those probabilities a very short while ago. Those are some really interesting points. I'm remembering back, my own start in the industry was in 1991. I worked for the chief economist for Nomura Securities. And the narrative in the market was that the Fed had to win the confidence of the markets in order to bring down long-dated inflation risk premium. That was the narrative. That's what we were all told to believe. Some of it was on the fiscal side as well. And so this search for cause and effect is something we all focus on. It's a little elusive sometimes. And you're right. We stare at these numbers and we see nice correlations that make sense to us. And then when they divorce themselves of each other, we just kind of move on. (laughs) So it's pretty interesting. (laughs) Tell us about your move out of Wellington. And now you're in a very, very interesting leadership role at One River running the inflation strategy product. I'd love to learn more about how that was conceived and just how you are thinking about it in terms of the vehicle that you're running. Really getting into inflation was almost an accident of my start date. So when I joined, the tips market had just started. The first tips were issued in 1998. When I joined, there was beginning to be a critical mass, I would say, of a few different inflation-linked securities. And I had a background in macroeconomics. People thought that I might know something more than the average person about inflation. Who knows if that was true? I was asked to look into it and learn about that market. And I've really been doing it ever since. It's been interesting to watch the market evolve over the, I would say, the mid-2000s when we had very high inflation, when we went through peak oil talk right before 2008 when we had deflation, and then to this sort of quantitative easing type of world. There's actually been a lot that's gone on with inflation over the course of my career. It's rarely been the focus like it is now, but definitely there have been some interesting times. How I ended up at One River was sort of an interesting accident. I was having 
coffee with a colleague, uh, sort of talking about what I thought the outlook was for inflation, that I thought that there were great opportunities in the markets that weren't really appreciated, but also a lot of risk in investors' portfolios that probably needed to be offset, but also that these are markets that people could look to capitalize on, not just looking at inflation as a risk. After I was talking, she told me, have you met Eric Peters? You should really talk to him because what you're saying sounds very similar to some of his ideas. Started talking to Eric. We had very similar long-term outlooks for the markets. And I decided to join One River and started working on these inflation solutions. So it's really been an interesting trajectory. And I think especially interesting right now because I feel like One River is really well positioned to take advantage of what I think is at the beginning of a major regime shift that will last decades. You talked about some of these cycles of inflation. I was always struck by the Janet Yellen comment. I want to say it might have been 2017 or so, but essentially associating the inflationary process with a, quote, mystery. So not exactly something that gives you a lot of confidence if the biggest central bank in the world finds the cause and effect of inflation and the drivers of it vexing. But maybe just from a big picture standpoint, in terms of the drivers of the process, what you've learned along the way, perhaps what you thought was true that on second thought, just through more evidence, you became less convinced was a driver of inflation. Take us through the big picture of how you think about what's pushing inflation either higher or lower. When I think about inflation, I think about it over a few different time frames. And on a more micro time frame, some of it is just really important to understand what inflation is in different countries and different regions. Just on a very basic level, people in different areas consume different things. There are different drivers. For example, the U.S. is much more sensitive to oil prices and its inflation measures than other countries. The U.S. is more sensitive to corn, whereas inflation in Japan or Korea are more sensitive to rice. I remember there was a tomato crop problem that was a big deal for Mexico. There are those micro issues that are just really important to understand. When we say inflation, what does that actually mean and what does it actually measure? On the bigger picture, I would say that one of the issues in terms of understanding inflation is that a lot of the longer-term drivers really are longer-term. A lot of trends like investment and labor trends, things that can take a long time to play out. I can understand why an economist would say it's very hard to be able to isolate one or two elements and say that that's the main driver. It's really a variety of different things happening over much longer time frames that makes it harder to point out how it's impacting inflation today. There was the famous quote, and so I'd love to see how you respond to this or how it figures into your own thinking, but Milton Friedman's inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. Does that ring true still? Or was that, again, one of these, we like the two series because they move together, but at some point, perhaps it was the velocity of money that broke down and that relationship became untethered. How do you think about just the M2 monetarist growth and the growth of the monetary aggregates impact on inflation? It's a great question. And to me, that's another one of those charts where everyone looked at it for a long time and then it just really stopped working. And even understanding velocity of money, one of my former colleagues 
who's an economics PhD, just sort of said one time that philosophy money is really just a residual and it used to be stable and now it's not. So the relationship between money and GDP is just not what it was. In terms of inflation being a monetary phenomenon, to me, what was really interesting over the last decade in terms of why I think that hasn't worked is inflation is a monetary phenomenon, especially if you're looking at currency debasement. The problem that central banks kind of ran into is everyone over the last decade, or at least all the major economies, wanted to debase their currency versus the other ones. And none of the other countries wanted to have the deflationary pressures exported to them. So everyone sort of kept competitively easing monetary policy. So you never really got that kind of monetary debasement that one would normally expect given the amount of money that was created because there was no relative change, just a big absolute change. And therefore, you didn't really get that kind of monetary inflation versus other currencies that you would expect. I think you got it in asset prices, but that's not considered inflation. There are a lot of folks out there now just pointing to this giant inconsistency, incongruity between the level of inflation and the level of nominal rates and the search for trying to understand how something could get so out of whack. If we start with this premise that a nominal rate is some real rate plus inflation expectation or risk premium, boy, we're pretty out of balance there. A previous guest on this podcast, Robert Tipp, who runs Global Bonds at PGM, had made the point, and I'd love to get your thought on this, that perhaps nominal rates and inflation are just not as connected as we thought they should be or think they should be, that you have these periods, and perhaps this is what you were referring to earlier, maybe it's demographic trends, maybe it's just the availability of capital for investment that play a larger and maybe longer term role in the setting of the risk-free rate. And it's not just inflation. How do you square today's nominal rate versus the current rate of inflation? I just think they're manipulated markets. I'm not sure how one could really look at it otherwise. And it's not just one country. I think it matters to all global rates that, say, the Bank of Japan has put a cap on 10-year yields. You have markets that are clearly explicitly manipulated. And then you have other markets, maybe more like the U.S., where you have just tremendous central bank buying. The central banks are by far the biggest market participant. And to me, what's really happened over the last decade of QE is that bonds have stopped being an investment and started being treated like a commodity. The breakdown, how I would think about it is an investment is something that's valued based on its future cash flows, whereas a commodity is valued based on the short and medium-term buying and selling. People are trading bonds to what central banks will buy, not to where they think there's long-term value. And for that reason, the fact that we have bonds that are completely disconnected from any sense of long-term fair value, I think is completely logical and an obvious side effect of what central banks have been doing. And perhaps just running with this concept that the yield on, let's just say, the nominal tenure versus the inflationary backdrop are just very inconsistent. They're tough to square with one another. There have been plenty of traders out there that have gotten the inflation view correct, 
but unfortunate for them, their choice of instrument, perhaps it's a just a short position in the 10-year note or 10-year note futures or payer swaptions, that's just vastly under-delivered versus the degree to which inflation has risen. And so with that, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about the ecosystem, so to speak, of inflation products. Again, everyone thinks about inflation. Oh, you're just going to go short the bond market to try to capture inflation. Well, as we've been discussing, that hasn't worked that well, not as well as people would have hoped. So it would be great to just hear from you what that ecosystem looks like in terms of tradable products with respect to inflation. I think that a big piece of this is just in terms of thinking about historical analogs, is we have two big shifts that are really happening. And inflation is just a part of it. But the other issue that we have going on is this financial repression, incredibly large central bank balance sheets, and what the process of unwinding those might look like. Just very simplistically, to sort of transition from what you were saying about 10-year nominal yields, if you know that the 10-year nominal yield is mispriced, when we think about inflation, that could be broken down into the inflation expectation and the real yield. We've sort of had this issue of how do we price in inflation if the nominal yield can't really reflect it. And we've seen real problems with that. I can think last year where some of the obvious trades became problematic because of this financial repression. So you've had big swings in the real yield, for example. And to your point, we really haven't had the moves of longer dated inflation expectations that one would expect given that we have 7.5% inflation. In terms of the ecosystem, I think one of the theses behind what we're doing at One River is that inflation brings inflation volatility. And moving out of this financial repression means that one has to really think about rotating the different positions where just being short duration, as you point out, hasn't been the right trade, but it has been the right trade for different points in time. In the same way, I think that the idea that real yields can rise significantly is at times offset by the fact that inflation is coming in so strong, where practically what that means is that the real yield has been falling and there's been more stimulus entering the system. I think that's hard for the market to square also. In terms of the products, the products that have really worked out the best have been, I would say, the more income-oriented products, the very short-dated tips, the one-year and two-year CPI swaps. At the beginning of 2021, the one-year CPI swap was priced at 2%, and that closed out at over 7%, where they've been systemically very mispriced. And the market doesn't have to adjust for you to make money on those. You can just realize the higher inflation and take that as income. What we've seen so far this year is you've had a bit of both, where the income has been very strong, but also you've had good price returns as, especially after the last CPI release, the market started to adjust more and more to the idea that inflation is really going to be much more medium-term issue. It's not something that's going to get resolved this year. Within the tips and inflation swaps, that set of products, and those are more on the linear side. And I know there's some subtleties between these two that we might want to explore as well. But take us through just the liquidity dynamics. You have this emerging, let's call it a problem, or certainly a risk profile 
that has such far-reaching impacts. There's a lot of stocks that have inflation as a vulnerability. Certainly the tech sector of the stock market has proven to not like higher rates and inflation. So within the subset of these products that directly target inflation, what's the last couple of years been like with respect to liquidity? Have there been new players just with regard to your own strategies? How have you found getting into and out of exposures? To me, the liquidity has been pretty good, but also not great at times. I think that to me, I've always considered the liquidity of these products to be more like swap-related credit products in the fixed income space, where just like with high-quality credit, the liquidity is usually very good, but you can definitely go through periods where the liquidity eases up. These are areas where one has to be a bit more nimble. Over the course of my career, I've definitely seen people in inflation-linked markets in the US, the UK, and Japan, people get trapped in bad trades. There's certainly an element of that with these markets where they can be very painful. But that said, in terms of liquidity seizing up, I remember in 2008, I was actually managing credit at the time. I remember when some of what I would consider benchmark pristine credit names just went no bid. And it was never that bad in the inflation-linked markets. But certainly, the prices can move a lot. And in some ways, sort of thinking back to around WorldCom, I wish I'd saved it. There was a research piece. The title was something like Six Sigma Events Seem to Happen Every Day. And that's something just in terms of managing the risk metrics on inflation-linked bonds. When you change the time horizon, the volatilities can change dramatically. They can be very stable, but then they can really become unhinged. And that's very similar to a lot of fixed-income products. I think for people who aren't used to dealing with detailed fixed-income products, people are maybe sort of more on the macro side, could be more surprised about that. But I think that expecting some issues with the liquidity is just what one needs to be prepared for dealing with what I would call sort of fixed income spread product. Ultimately, these prices that we see in the markets are just a function of where two counterparties decided they could exchange risk and meet up for a trade. So there's a supply and demand dynamic that governs all of these markets and creates the prices. It'd be great to learn a little bit more within this specific part of the inflation ecosystem, let's call it the swaps or the tips market, what does the supply side look like and what does the demand side look like in terms of the types of investors and the types of strategies being employed on each side? In terms of the supply side, it's disproportionately governments. So in terms of people who are willing to pay inflation, the biggest markets have really always been different governments the government-issued securities. If you go to other markets, the UK is probably one of the bigger ones. You do have corporations who pay inflation at different types of industries where there's arguably a clear inflationary bias towards their cash flows, say rails or utilities. But it really is primarily government bonds that are the payers. And really, even the CPI swaps are derived in many ways off of those government bonds. In terms of the buyers, I would say up until the last couple of years, it had really gotten a bit more into sort of ETFs. You have a lot of pension buying more outside the U.S. for cost of living adjustment hedges for those long-term pensions. 
And then also you know, things like target date funds that have inflation-linked bonds in them. I would say what's started to shift is more tactical players getting involved in the markets. And some of it is just a factor of the opportunity of the opportunity set with inflation being as high as it is and as volatile as it is. The return potential for these securities is much higher than it's been at any point in the last decade or so. You had referred to the GFC, global financial crisis, insofar as credit going no bid. I'm also recalling just in that time, if you look at a time series of break-even inflation, it went to, at least for a short period of time, went to negative levels. And I think at least some part of that was really a liquidity vacuum, perhaps between the tips market and the nominal treasury market. One, is that correct? And then two, what was that like just in terms of that period of time during the height of the crisis with regard to the tips market? In terms of the liquidity, the big liquidity crush that happened was after Lehman. And part of what happened there was that Lehman had been posting tips as collateral versus its credit swaps because the asset swaps on tips were particularly attractive. So when Lehman went bust, you saw a lot of credit managers get delivered tips. I know that this happened with my colleagues. And so I say at the same time where credit is really blowing up, there's no liquidity and you're delivered something where you don't know what it is. It's not worth having in your portfolio and you can actually sell it when you can't sell anything else. There was definitely a liquidity inspired selling in that type of way that was very technical But I think there were also, the market was really pricing in very, very low inflation for a very long time. And we did have negative inflation there for at least a little bit. So it wasn't unreasonable to think that that would happen or could persist. But in terms of trading it, there were some amazing trades in that space. Again, if you had the liquidity to take advantage of it. The one that I remember most distinctly, just sort of, you know, Sometimes you see great buys of a decade was when the newly issued 10-year tip came out at a 0% real yield, and it had a deflation put. So basically, it was a zero break-even. So if you got deflation, you would just get paid out like a normal nominal bond. But if you did have inflation, you would just accrue inflation. So it was just literally asymmetric upside. And Those are the types of things, and in terms of nonlinearity, because of the embedded puts, there have been some interesting times where you can get nonlinear payouts in these securities. It doesn't happen a lot, but when it does, it's really attractive. I had seen some of the work by some of the various regional Fed banks, I think, had studied that embedded deflation put along the way. I found some of that stuff interesting. And just with regard to kind of optionality in terms of inflation. One of the charts that I loved a couple of years ago was put out by the IMF. And essentially they had, looking at this implied distribution of inflation, they're looking at CPI caps struck at different levels. And what you see from that, of course, no surprise is that the possibility of even getting to two or 3% back in maybe 2017 or so this was really in the Eurozone too, was just literally zero. (laughs) It's just amazing. These cycles of market prices, whether it's on the equity vol side, we see incredibly low levels and then we see incredibly high levels. Of course, it seems the same is 
true with inflation. What's unique about today's inflation with regard to its stickiness and what's different from previous periods? I think what's different is potentially the medium to long-term setup that we have. I think there's been a lot of desire to get back to normal or this belief that we're going to get back to whatever normal is. I think that's just not going to happen. I believe that COVID has shifted a lot of views. And one of those is around some of the investment or really lack of investment that's happened over the last decade. Investment has been very low. A lot of companies have been buying back stock instead of investing. And and it's been a good thing to do, frankly, over the last decade. I think that's one of the side effects of QE. But now the risks of some of the productivity gains over the last couple of decades have been exposed. The risks of just-in-time inventory, the risks of outsourcing all pieces of the supply chain. I think that we're actually set up for a medium term. We'll end up being a bit of an inflationary boom. I think it'll probably be disinflationary out a couple of decades. But the kind of supply disruptions that we're seeing, I think, are going to be with us for a while. I think the desire to build more warehouses, build more redundancies, hold more inventory, those are not going to take months to resolve. They're going to take years. So to me, there's a really big setup that's happening economically that's likely to change the trajectory of inflation really for the next several years. As we're seeing the escalation of tensions with Russia and Ukraine, energy is in the crosshairs of the market and it's rising. How does that fit into your analysis of the inflation backdrop? It's obviously inflationary. I think it also is one of the areas that adjusts inflation expectations more quickly. And if one were to look at things like consumer surveys of inflation expectations over the next year, the correlation to oil ends up being just very high. It's just a price that consumers see very frequently. I think it's significant. I also think it's an area where you could get into certain economic issues where in a couple of different ways, oil and food tend to be areas where the government will step in and subsidize consumer spending, even if it means that you could have economically higher prices further on. It's just politically unpalatable for people to go hungry or people to not be warm in the wintertime. I think that's going to be a bit of an issue going forward. I also think we have a bit of an investment problem there longer term in terms of really the investment trying to shift to more renewable energy sources and that being an additional piece to this whole situation. I think the big question will be whether this ends up being more of a tax or more inflation. And to me, it's going to be a bit more inflation just because of how strong growth is as we go into this period of higher energy prices. But that still remains to be seen. We haven't talked much about labor markets and just the least potential that rising wages become a part of the story, just how workers interact with their employers. We've seen at least some history of that goes back a ways, but I think that's certainly on people's minds and makes its way into some of the Fed commentary. How does that figure into how you think about inflation, just the outlook for labor markets and wage growth? I think it actually has a potential to make the inflation more self-reinforcing. 
we do have very tight labor markets, clearly, from what all companies are saying, and a real opportunity to increase nominal wages. But at the same time, real wages have been declining. So the push to get higher wages is really twofold. It's a real need to keep up with the cost of living also. So in some ways, wages haven't been doing that well in nominal terms for some time, but it hasn't been as much of an issue because inflation has been low. I think with nominal wages being where they are and inflation rising, it just creates the need for employees to get paid more. I was listening to, I think it was Bloomberg Radio and the way into work. And one of the stories was how gasoline in Los Angeles, I guess, is over $6 now. And people were commenting that it makes it hard to commute to work. That's really true. We have a lot of workers who are living paycheck to paycheck. And for them to even be able to show up at work, they're going to need to be paid more. It's so fascinating. And it kind of gets back to your idea that you laid out at the top of the call, which is just on inflation volatility. And I wanted to use that to introduce the Federal Reserve and how it impacts markets. You made the point that, of course, these prices we look at are clearing prices in some way, but maybe not entirely. They clear the market with a lot of artificiality and price agnostic demand from central banks around the world. And ours, of course, is the biggest one. It's got quite a stockpile there. But market prices react both to that demand, but also this sort of sense of whether the Fed is committed or not to what it may be up against. There was that June meeting, I want to say, from last year where the curve just flattened dramatically. Twos, tens, fives, thirties. And this seemed to be a moment where the market decided, well, hey, the Fed actually is on this. The Fed is going to be reasonably hawkish. And it seems since then they've grown and grown in terms of the immediacy with which they're willing to act. When you look at just prices along the yield curve today and what they embed about future moves from the Fed, walk us through what you see there. What information content can we extract from the yield curve, the manipulation of it notwithstanding? As you kind of reference, I do take the yield curve with a bit of a grain of salt because it is being manipulated. I don't think it gives the same kind of signal that it would have in the past. I think the market is correctly trying to balance a few different strong forces. As you mentioned, I think it's reflecting what investors think will probably be a very volatile path where inflation is high. The Fed will be tightening, but how much can they tighten before we have a real serious growth impact? And how far will inflation fall and if growth retreats? And those are just hard questions. I don't think there's the appetite or really probably the need at this point to cause a recession to get inflation down. But I have a lot of respect for central bankers. I certainly don't think I could do a better job. And I think despite best efforts, there is a real risk once you start tightening monetary conditions that you uncover some kind of an excess that wasn't readily apparent on the surface and you can cause recession much more quickly than one would think. Conversely, if there is no hiking and inflation really continues to get out of hand, that can cause its own problems. I think they're in a very difficult position. In a weird way, the markets are pricing 
an odd balance of those two very significant forces. You make some great points there, Lindsay, and this idea that the speed with which Fed policy tightenings are either being impounded in prices or then coming out has definitely accelerated. I was looking at three-month, two-year swaps involved, both to the payer side and the receiver side, and it's still skewed towards the payer, i.e. higher rates as the bigger risk, but that receiver vol is up a ton as well. And I think it's just the case that if this geopolitical quandary gets worse and you see a real denting of risk appetite, you could see some of those Fed tightenings that got impounded into the shorter part of the yield curve just as soon come out. Absolutely. And to me, the only thing I feel confident right now about the the whole geopolitical risk is that it's likely inflationary in the short term, whether it be through higher energy prices or through different sanctions. But I think that just makes the job of central banks even harder to what extent should they address this even higher inflation because it's also likely to be very growth destructive. Take us through when you look at the Fed's mission ahead of it and the market implications of that. You've got rates and the cycle of tightening and the trajectory of it, where the market ultimately expects the Fed to stop. And then, of course, there's the balance sheet as well. You said that some of these prices are manipulated by the Fed's buying. How do you see the balance sheet playing out in terms of, one, the impact for liquidity and risk sentiment, and then two, on interest rates themselves? I think there are a couple of things that are different about the markets now than at the beginning of my career that will probably make a bit of a comeback once central banks exit more seriously. The first one is the negative convexity of the market with the Federal Reserve holding so much of the mortgage market in the U.S. and not delta hedging that exposure. I think we've seen a little bit of that at different points. I think that we've had less volatile markets because of QE in addition to lower total yields. So I expect that that will become more interesting. I think that for things like the tips market, the relative buying, the relative size of the markets has um, been an issue as well in terms of the pricing. So I expect some volatility there in those markets that I follow more closely, just in the process of having this all worked out. And I think there's a big piece of this that's kind of unknown, or I would say is a known unknown is how I would put it, where I think it's well understood at this point that this trillions of buying that's happened has distorted valuations in a lot of different markets. You mentioned earlier some of the problems with some of the tech companies in NASDAQ. I think the real question is, how does this shrinking of the balance sheet impact those other assets? And I think that's where investors really look more to a potential recession or the market or the Federal Reserve having to stop prematurely is that central banks have impacted the markets more significantly than they might expect. Yeah, that's so interesting. And we live in a very paper wealth centric society, very financialized markets. Bill Dudley has been on Bloomberg and essentially suggesting that ahead of the Fed is just this need to tighten financial conditions, which even as they started to talk about tapering, financial conditions just got easier and easier. Now, of course, you've got credit spreads popped up, the VIX is higher, 
stock prices are a bit lower and rates are higher. So some of the job appears to be being done on behalf of the Fed just through market prices. So I think that's pretty interesting. What about the inflation curve? There's the yield curve, the nominal yield curve that everybody stares at, 2s, 10s, 5s, 30s, and so forth. There's also this inflation curve. And I was looking at just the 2s, 10s part of the break-even curve was inverted to the tune of, I want to say, 170 basis points. Be great to hear just your thoughts as you stare at that set of prices and what information content you derive from it. What are the movements either on an absolute or relative basis that you're most focused on? Great question. This is one of the things that we actually talk about the most internally at the One River weekly markets discussion is how well anchored long-term expectations have been in general, where it's not just sort of the inversion of the curve, but when I look at metrics like the five-year, five-year forward that the Fed and others look at for long-term inflation expectations, it's been incredibly well anchored. If anything, it's been moving forward this month, despite or perhaps because of some of the increases in inflation expectations over the very short term. So to me, that's been very interesting in terms of just how to perceive that. But I actually think that in terms of trading in the markets, to me, that means two things. The first is if there are investors who are worried that they've missed the trade. I don't think they have. If you look at where, to your point, where 10-year break-evens are, they are not even at their all-time highs. So there's still a lot of opportunity and a lot of expectation embedded in the markets that inflation is going to fall back to 2% relatively rapidly. And to me, the risk is very much, and the interest in trade is very much that that doesn't happen. To me, it could even be potentially one of these events that we've talked about in the past where the market is very anchored for a long time and then all of a sudden becomes unanchored. And I'm not sure when that happens, but I think that's going to be a very interesting trade when the markets start to anticipate that maybe we're not going to be going back to sub 2% inflation anytime soon, because that's really been the part of the tip seal curve that has been very reluctant to move sort of anything beyond the next two or three years. So there's some information content in the flattening of that curve at high levels is kind of what I'm reading from that. Yeah. And I would say really inversion of the curve. If you were to break it down, it's very much that there's a recognition that inflation is high today, but an expectation that it's going to fall back into line very, really pretty rapidly. And to me, that's a risk to take the other side of. We talked earlier about the Milton Friedman famous quote tying monetarism to inflation. The fiscal side is also one that's interesting and love to get your take on. I do want to read this quote from James Carville, which I know you know. It's a great one. So when he was under the Clinton administration as an advisor, he said, I used to think that if there was reincarnation, I wanted to come back as the president or the pope or as a 400 baseball hitter. But now I would like to come back as the bond market. You can intimidate everybody. So this was maybe peak bond market, <laughs> bond market vigilanteism. And a lot of folks have said, well, where are these vigilantes? Where is the buyer's strike amidst this incredible deficit spending that not just the US, but most countries have embraced? How does the fiscal side figure into how you think about inflation? I think the fiscal side matters a lot in, in a lot of ways. The fiscal push that we had during COVID is at least partially responsible for some of 
the inflation pressures that we have now. In some ways, your question's about fiscal, but when I really thought about the answer, I, I sort of think back to some of the implications of QE and the monetary side, where I think the intent of a lot of QE was to force investors into other assets. But I think perversely, it's kind of had the opposite effect because what central banks have done is by buying, they've pushed up prices. And by committing to buy, they've created a situation where you don't really have a lot of risk of losses until now when we're talking about doing the opposite. So I think what practically happened was it created an incentive for investors to push out their investment horizon as long as possible, which is disinflationary, not inflationary, and to move into bonds where they anticipate there's going to be buying. And we're starting to see the unwind of that. I think that perversely, the unwind is probably going to be much more inflationary than any of the QE that we've had over the last decade plus. Well, that's fascinating. And so we certainly, if we look at the QE, and you'll remember this, I want to say it was probably 2009 or 2010, a group of maybe 100 very highly regarded economists wrote a letter essentially suggesting or were fearful that all of the new bond buying by the Fed was going to prove to be inflationary. It was anything but. <laughs> so the cause and effects, even amongst the best and brightest, are really difficult to get right. But as you think about the unwind of QE as being some sort of inflation push, how do you think about that? Very broadly, when I think about behaviors of inflation versus behaviors of disinflation, inflation creates a desire to pull purchases forward, to hold more inventory, to make purchases today rather than put them off. And what QE did, in my mind, was shift investors' time horizon. Because really, what happened is, you could sort of think of the shadow yield curve was steeper and the shadow yield curve was higher. And what central banks did is they practically made it more attractive or sort of they overpaid for longer dated items. To me, it actually pushed time horizons longer as people reach for yield and reach for longer dated assets, which is what central banks were buying, what they were capping. And what's starting to happen now is you're starting to have that unwind where people are pulling cash and purchases forward. Companies want to hold more inventory. That's not necessarily related to QE, but having these very long-term bets is not as attractive as having some of these shorter-term bets. Having your money locked up for a long period of time is just no longer as attractive. So to me, the unwind is a shift back to much shorter time horizons, which will in and of itself create inflation. So interesting. And within the equity market, you see some bifurcation just in terms of the, some of it comes down to growth versus value, but there's a number of other sort of factor-oriented ways to slice it with regard to the stock's duration. These long duration assets tended to be growthy and where you can effectively get convinced that there's a story there based on some very long-term plan. So I think that ties into what you were just suggesting there. Well, Lindsay, this has been a fantastic conversation at an incredibly timely period in markets with regard to inflation and just the risks of a sudden stop from the Fed in terms of having to change course so quickly and all the implications for asset prices from 
this newfound risk. So it's been great to hear your expertise, and I really thank you for being a guest today. Absolutely. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. <music>